Thanks, Greg. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? How's your New Year's resolution doing? I know some of you, they don't do, you're like, I don't do resolutions. You're like very adamant about that. You want everybody to know I don't do resolutions. But for those of you that do, do you know that there's a little bit of research that's been done that say they sort of like figured out the average date when your resolution falls apart? So that is January 19th. So that was two days ago. If you're still going right now, you're winning right now. Congratulations. You are not most people, which is awesome. If For some of you I know, it fell apart January 1st, 2nd maybe. But we have this tricky relationship when it comes to resolutions. Um, for some of you, you are very planned. You have a journal. You have color-coded sticky notes. You, have, you know exactly what you're doing. For some of you, you just pulled out last year's list because it looks exactly the same. <laughs> and so I was looking online, and there was a, I, I, it caught my attention, a few resolutions people had tweeted. So I'm just going to bring a couple of them up here. One person said, I don't need a New Year's resolution. It's the year's turn to be better. <laughs> One person said, my New Year's resolution is for my body to make less sound when I stand up. <laughs> I can relate to that. My birthday is New Year's Day, so it's like all of a sudden I start a new, a new, I'm like a year older as soon as we hit, so yeah. Um, my New Year's resolution is to procrastinate more. I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> this person said, my pants are fitting a bit tight. It's time to get serious. My New Year's resolution is to buy bigger pants. <laughs> That's it. Set, set your goals real low. This person said, everyone is exercising as their New Year's resolution. Meanwhile, I'm watching a TV show I don't like because I dropped the remote on the floor. <laughs> and the last one's this. This year, was my, this year my resolution is to not be so passive aggressive. Unlike someone else I know. Some of you, you'll get that on the way home. <laughs> Behind every resolution, though, there's this, this idea that you want more. And when I say more, I don't mean like... Uh, more things, uh, more more items. There's something. It's usually more, more willpower, more time, more discipline, more dedication. Because those are going to translate to more health, more quality time, more investment in relationships, more of a connection with God. So this word "more," like a lot of times, it feels bad because it feels like. I want more means I'm not content with what I have, but it doesn't have to be bad. Because God wants more for you. And contrary to what some maybe popular evangelists will push when they say God wants more for you, which means that God wants a BMW and a house in Maui and a bigger bank account, that's not the, the more God's, God wants for you. God wants more compassion for you. God wants more patience with your family. God wants you to be more generous to the needy. God wants you to have more faith when you hit the valleys of your life. God wants you to have more contentment when you hit the highs in life. God's more is a good more. So how do you find God's more for you in your life? Well, you need a plan, much like your resolution, much like a diet. 
Like, if you're going to go on a diet, you need to make a commitment to cut out sugars and breads and fats. And you decide that it all begins on Monday. It's always Monday. And then Monday comes. And the girl guides show up at your house with those delicious cookies. And so you're like, okay, we start on Tuesday. Tuesday turns to Wednesday. And then you're like, nobody starts a diet on a Wednesday. So it's back to Monday again. And it's the same spiritually. Because people all over the world today will meet in gatherings just like this. And they will, they will hear the music that God will speak to their heart. They'll hear a message that, that will sort of challenge them. And then they'll walk out of here. And studies show that if you don't perform some sort of act of change, some sort of action within three days after mentally committing to do something new, you probably won't. So for some of you... You left here last Sunday, and, and you heard, I, I listened to a little bit of Pastor Matt's message. He did a great job about your calling, and you left here Sunday going, oh, I need to do some new things. I need to, I need to ch- stop some things. I need to change some things, and then now you're here Sunday, and you didn't do any of those things, and it's not impossible, but the odds are that you won't if you, within three days, you haven't done something, so If you want more from God in your life, you need a plan and a step. Because God's got this big plan for you, but a plan that it's a plan that requires some action on your part. So here's the formula: the formula is extraordinary faith plus ordinary steps. Because this big dream, without that little small start, is just a daydream. Uh, faith isn't just about believing. It's faith requires some action on your part. It's why James, the, the brother of Jesus, said this. He points out that faith without works is dead. So faith is believing that God can do something incredible, but it also means that you're willing to get your hands dirty and partnering with him to accomplish it. And so this morning, I want to take a look at the story of the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, and he was offered more than what he had from God. And he was offered more and less of the life that he knew. And when he was presented with this idea of more, he didn't hesitate. And so, also in this story is the prophet Elijah. Now, if, you're, if you've been around church for a long time, you know Elijah quite well, very famous, huge Huge, huge person in the Old Testament. If you're not, this is really confusing because it's a story with two prophets and one's named Elijah and one named Elisha. And it gets confusing. And I know some people are like, well, I think that the Bible is just a man-made story. It's fictional. Well, if you're going to write a story with two people, why would you name them Elijah and Elisha? It gets really confusing. It would just be so much easier if you had the prophet Elijah and the prophet Jimmy. It's just a little easier Unless that's what their names are, and you just have to roll with it. So Elijah, the older prophet, he, he, tur- he, he had come along in a time when people had turned away from God in Israel. They were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping uh, idols, and they were worshiping all kinds of evil. And so Elijah, his, his, his job was to come along and declare to the people, and more significantly, significantly the kings and the rulers, that the God of Israel was the one true God. 
In fact, his name, Elijah, means Yahweh is God. And so his warnings of displeasure of their lifestyle weren't exactly, wasn't exactly a popular message with the people who liked their kind of sort of evil ways. Much like today, people don't like to be told that the things that they're doing is not, is not right in the eyes of God. And so he was calling on them to repent and to change. And it was an important job. And so God uses Elijah at an important time in Hebrew, Hebrew history to turn the eyes of the nation back to God. And this is where Elijah comes in. And when we find him, he's not a prophet. He's actually a farmer. And he's sitting on the back of a plow. And he's, he's pushing a herd of oxen. And he's doing the same thing every day, going round and round in circles. And this has nothing to do with whether, whether farming is, a, is, a, is an honorable profession, because it absolutely is. It's just not the plan that God had for Elijah. And that's how Elijah must have felt. Many of us have been in that situation where you're just, you're like, I know I'm not where God wants me to be. And there's a, it's a tough thing when you know that. And so he knows, as he's sitting behind oxen, going round and round in circles, as they kick up dust and dirt and dung into his face, he's doing the same job, he's got the same view, he's got the same future. And so we pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 19, says this, So Elijah, remember this is the older prophet, went and found Elijah, son of Shaphat, not to be confused with Snapchat, plowing a field and there were 12 teams of oxen in the field and Elijah was plowing with the 12th team Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak around his shoulders and then walked away so again here's Elisha he's going about his day and he's probably wondering is this all there is like I'm faithful to this I'm consistent I work hard and meanwhile I feel like Maybe this isn't what God wants for me. And and meanwhile, behind the scenes, God has this plan for Elijah that he doesn't even realize. It's actually bigger than what he would ever dream for himself. And so out of nowhere, Elijah walks up to him, says nothing, and throws his cloak around him. Now, let me get a volunteer. Maybe a young person. I need a volunteer. Xavier, you're right there. Nice. Xander, come here. Xander, come here. Okay. So I lost my... So come over here. Now you're, I'm going to put this back on. All right, now, where do you work? Okay, so let's just imagine you're going about doing it. I'm going to pretend you don't like that job, okay? We're not going to say anything in case your boss is here right now. (laughs) So you're just going about your day, and you're feeling like, I don't know, this is not what God wants for me. And so randomly, some guy... Just random guy walks up to you, doesn't say a thing, and just throws a cloak on you and walks away. Now understand how, what is your first thing you're going to do? Why wouldn't it be just follow me? Because <laughs> it's a weird thing. Thanks, Xander. Xander was on the, the basketball team I coached, so he's used to taking instructions from me and not knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> but Elijah, Elijah runs after him. 
he runs after him. And I know as an adult, if a guy came up to me and just threw a random cloak on me and walked away, I would not follow after them curious. I'd be curious, but I think I would go the other direction because there's a lot of stranger danger going on there. But Elijah didn't need to say anything in this moment because there was an incredible amount of, of, of uh, there's an incredible amount of monumental significance to this moment. There is so much symbolism in this unspoken gesture. And so it says that Elijah left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, go go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Which is a strange sentence, but, but it means go ahead as you please. But recognize this moment. I have passed the mantle. God has a plan for you that's bigger than sitting behind these oxen. So do as you need to do. But understand the significance of what God wants. He wants more for your life. So it goes on to say this. So Elijah returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople And they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. And so Elijah leaves behind everything that he knows. Now, scholars believe that Elijah's family was quite wealthy. In fact, all the farming equipment, all the land probably was was his father's, which was going to be passed down to him one day. It was a very comfortable existence. Like he was going to inherit all of this. And there was others that would look at him and go, wow. I wish I was set up like that. And so what makes this momentary decision so remarkable is he leaves everything behind. He leaves his comfort. He leaves the wealth. He leaves everything behind him. And so, but first he leaves and he goes back and he takes the oxen and he slaughters them and he cooks them for for his neighbors, which probably made him very, very popular. All of a sudden, he has this outdoor block barbecue before he leaves. And it wasn't such a, that wasn't an uncommon thing to cook up, slaughter animals and cook it at the time. But then, he doesn't, then he burns the plow. Like, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't you just maybe just give it away or at least put it up on Facebook Marketplace and see what you can get for it? But it's bigger than that for him. Because what Elijah was doing is he recognized his old life was comfortable. And it was predictable. And it was adequate. But he recognized that God had more for his life. And he knew that this, this mission that God had put him on was going to be a tough one. He was going to go with Elijah. And he was, going to, he was going to deliver a message that wasn't that popular and not every day was going to, be, going to be great. He was going to be persecuted. And there were going to be days where he just felt like in his weakness, I just want to go back to what I had. I just want to go back to my old life where it was comfortable. And so he burns the plow so he can't go back to what he had. So now... We fast forward, fast forward into 2 Kings, and Elijah has now left him, and Elisha is now a solo act. And in 2 Kings chapter 3, 
We read this story, and this is where we're kind of going to sit a little bit today, that demonstrates that when you have extraordinary faith, that God uses your ordinary steps to accomplish great things. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 3. If you have your device, that's cool too. I'll be honest. I love having my Bible on my phone because I take my phone everywhere. I take my notes on it. But you got to do what's best for you. Some of you got like big Bibles, pages falling out and sticky notes everywhere. That's your thing. Awesome. Do that. Some of you, it's your device. So whatever, whatever gets you closer to God. But we'll have it up here on the screen so you can follow along there as well. Now I want you to, in order for me to set this up, I have to show you a little bit of history so that you understand. And as I'm going through this, I recognize it can get a little bit tricky. So what I did was I created an illustration. How many of you guys are old enough to remember being in Sunday school with flannel graph? Okay, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I created digital flannel graph up here. All right, just to give you a little bit of background. So we're starting with King Joram over here. This is during Elijah's time. King Joram is ruling over Israel in the years in which the kingdom is divided. And so King Joram's parents were King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Okay, Ahab and Jezebel had led Israel away from God towards idol worship and towards the false god of Baal. And when Elijah, the older one, called them out, they wanted to kill him. And so during this time when Ahab, the, the father, was, he was reigning over, he conquered the land of Moab. And as a result, the Moabites were required to pay as a tribute thousands and thousands of sheep and wool. And so when Ahab dies... And Joram, the son, now takes over. Okay? Following? When he takes over, all of a sudden, the Moabites go, Whoa, okay, Ahab's dead. We're done. We're not giving you any more sheep, no more wool. And this decision is a declaration of war. And so Joram, King Joram, mobilizes an army to fight against the Moabites. But not without help. So he sends a message to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and then he adds the army of Edom. And so now they have this mega army, and they're ready to wage war on the Moabites, okay, these three kings. The problem was they had this massive, massive army, which looked good, like looked good that they were going to, they were going to win this, this war, but it was a seven-day trek to get to Moab, and they took this seven-day trek in the middle of a drought. And so this army had no water for themselves or their animals. And so they're in the middle of the desert. They're heading to Moab to fight, fight the Moabites. And they are tired. And they're dehydrated. And they're in no state to fight. The morale is low. And Joram decides at this point that maybe it's time to involve God. Not because of his undying faith, because he's a leader that has no answers to their situation. And then someone suggests, I know a guy who's associated with God. His name is Elijah. Surely this man of God will have the answers and act on our behalf. And so they, they send off to get Elijah. 
Now, Elijah doesn't forget that Joram's parents were brutal to his mentor, that they tried to kill him. And so he's not exactly thrilled to help them out. So we pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 13. says this. He says, why are you coming to me? Go to the pagan prophets of your father and mother. This is what we call prophet biblical trash talk. This is like, where's your bail now? You're coming to the God of Israel now when you need him? And so he goes on to say this. But King Joram of Israel said, no. For it was the Lord who called us three kings here, only to be defeated by the king of Moab. So he's, the situation they're in, he's now blaming God for putting them in this situation. And Elijah replied, as surely as the Lord, Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I wouldn't even bother with you, except for my respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now bring me someone who can play the harp. So you got a little bit of prophet attitude. And then the strangest line, bring me someone who can play a harp. To which they're like, did he say harpist? Like we're dying and we're thirsty and we need a miracle. And he's asking for a harpist. All right, bring the man a harpist. And it actually wasn't really a weird request in Elijah's day. It was quite common for them to bring a musician or musicians in to create background music that would create sensitivity for God's presence, which is really not any different than what I'm going to do at the end of this service when I call the the musicians back up. I don't think they're going to bring a harp, but who knows? So it says, while the harp was being played, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he said, this is what the Lord says. This dry valley will be filled with pools of water. And this is where we're going to focus our attention. Because the message version of the Bible says it like this. He said, he, he then said, God's word, dig ditches all over this valley. King James Version says, and thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. And so he asked King Joram for a small step, like an ordinary step. The king wanted a miracle. He would get his miracle, but first I need you to take a step. It's almost like God says, it's one thing to believe, but if you really believe, pick up a shovel and get digging. Show me your faith, and I will show you my faithfulness. Dig ditches, and I will send rain. Now imagine this. You haven't seen a cloud in weeks in the sky. It's getting dark, you're tired, you're dehydrated, you're in the middle of the desert, your animals are dying, you need a miracle, and the prophet says, dig. Dig. And so it's easy to go, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got a, I got a cup. Like, I, I don't need to dig. I got my cup. And if God says rain, I'll just hold out my cup and I can get a drink. But Elijah's like, no, no, no. You don't understand. You're thinking too small. God wants more for you than what this cup can hold. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I got a pail. 
If I hold out this pail, I put the pail out, then I can get the more that you're talking about from God. And Elijah's like, no, 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 no. You're still thinking too small. God's going to bring more than this pail could possibly hold. He says, I want you to dig a ditch. And then another ditch. And then another. I want you to dig ditches all over this valley. Because when God pours out his blessing, you won't be able to contain it with a cup and a pail. And so he says this. You will see neither wind nor rain, says the Lord. But this valley will be filled with water. You will have plenty for yourselves and your cattle and other animals. But this is only a simple thing for the Lord, for he will make you victorious over the army of Moab. Skip down to verse 20. The next day, at about the time when the morning sacrifice was offered, water suddenly appeared. It was flowing from the direction of Edom, and soon there was water everywhere. You see, I like, I like the idea of God's more in my life. But I like the idea of God showing me a sign before I do anything. Like, I want to wait around and see if he does something. He makes a move first. Then I'll do some work towards that thing. But that's not how God works. Like, if God's going to bring his blessing, can you handle it? Are you prepared for his mantle? Like, the Leamington area is surrounded by rural areas. Some of you in this room actually farm for a living and you look at weather completely different than everybody else who does. Because for some of us, when we get like two weeks of no rain, we're like, we're bragging about how good our weather is. Man, it's been so good. This has been such an awesome summer. Because our livelihood doesn't depend on it. But back in 1853, there was an extended drought in Ohio that caused a lot of concern. Farmers were in danger of losing their entire livestock and their crops. And to make it worse, they didn't have the ability, like we do today, to irrigate and draw water from the ground. And so it got so bad that the farmers actually decided that they were going to do the only thing they knew what to do was ask God for help. And so they reached out to famous evangelist Charles Finney. And they asked him if he would come and pray for rain. And they were thinking, like, if... If God will listen to anybody, they will listen to this man. And so on the day that he was scheduled to arrive, the whole community gathered in the town square to join him in prayer. And Finney took his place behind the podium that had been set up in the town square, and he looked out over the crowd. There was a lot of anxious people waiting on, for his next word. And he gazed at them for a few moments, and this is the first thing he said. Am I the only one? Here, who brought an umbrella with me? Although everyone claimed to be seeking God's help and trusted God to bring the rain, only Finney was the one who believed. He was the only one who brought an umbrella. So he preached this short sermon on faith. He set his umbrella down by his chair and he began to pray. Here's what he said Lord, we do not presume to tell you what is best for us. You invite us to come to, to you as children to a father. And tell you all our wants. We need rain. Unless you give us rain, our cattle will die and our harvest will come to naught. It's an easy thing for you to do. Oh Lord, send us rain. And the rest is history. God immediately answered the prayer of Charles Finney. Who reminded people with an umbrella. 
that God works only in response to our faith. You see, it's in those moments where God seems like he's absent that we need to go to work. You need to exercise some faith. You need to approach God with a sense of expectation. Even when you look in the sky and there's not a cloud to be seen anywhere. This week at the, at the Hope Center, if, you're, if, you're, if we haven't talked about this before, the Hope Center is in town. That's where I work. It's a Christian response to homelessness and addiction. Uh, we, have a, we have a drop-in seven days a week and addiction programs and, and spiritual programs as well. My job as manager of Next Steps is to take people who are hungry, take them and get them to the next place where they're dealing with their addiction and some of their mental health issues, but also to introduce them to who there's a God who loves them, has a plan for them, and wants more for their life. And I love, I love, love, love the people who, who um, volunteer there. Some of you are here today because they're so passionate about what they do. They love our, our guests so much, and they love God so much, and they're believing for great things for our guests. Yeah, we, we serve a hot meal and we give out clothing and grocery stuff, but we hand out more than anything is hope. Hoping a God that loves them and wants something more for their lives. And if you spend any time serving the guests that come in, you can't help but want more for them. And sometimes it feels like we want more for them than they want for them. And we want more than the chains of addiction that's held them back for so long. And we want more than the childhood trauma that has actually led them a lot of times to that addiction. And at the same time, the Hope Center is named after the hope of Jesus. Like there's a saying that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can lead someone to the living water, but it's only the Holy Spirit that's going to be able to take them and transform their heart. So what do you do in the meantime? Like you can lead them to, you can tell them about Jesus, but you can't make somebody believe in Jesus or can't make someone be transformed. What do you do? You dig ditches. And I've watched as our incredible volunteers have been serving and loving our guests. And they've been building trust. And they've been showing their faith. And when the time is right, they've been, they've been sharing their faith with our guests for over a year. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary a couple few days ago. And they've been digging ditches the whole time with their eyes on the sky, expecting that God is going to pour out his blessing. And we've had a couple of victories in this last week at the Hope Center. We've had a couple of people that are battling addiction who've turned to Jesus for the first time. And they've asked for prayer. And they've asked for something different in their lives, and we've been able to share with them. One of our guests, who's been around for the entire year, had a breakthrough this week. 58 years old, said, I'm done. I'm done with the addiction. I'm done. I want more in my life. I need help. And I watched as one of our volunteers, who has invested her life for a number of months into him, speak words of life and encouragement and, t- and show him how to get help. Was able to remind him that there is a God that wants more for him. And then she prayed over him. And I don't think he has any faith background, but I watched his tears filled his eyes as he just continually nodded that there is a God who cares about him and he wants the more that God wants for him. He's now at one of our sober living facilities where he's getting clean where he's going to hear more about God's plan for his life. 
there's just this moment when there's, it feels like uh, you see some of the guests that come in, you think, will, will we ever get through to them? It seems like there's not a cloud in the sky. And there's no hope. And in those moments, you just start digging. What small practical steps is God asking you to make? I'm going to invite the the worship team back to bring their harps. (laughs) What is he asking you to do? What is is he asking you to, to dig for when he sends more into your life? What, di- what ditches is he asking you to dig? Maybe it's your marriage. It isn't going to fit, be fixed overnight. And you know that God's probably going to have to pour out his blessing. But in the meantime, maybe you need to pick up a shovel that you haven't picked up for a long time and dig. And you pray for your marriage. And you choose to treat him or her better, differently than you have. Even knowing that maybe it's not going to be returned right away to you in the way that you hope. The guy would say, dig ditches all over this valley and I will fill it. Maybe you have a prodigal son or or daughter and, and you wish they were following the faith that they grew up in. Dig. Pray for them. Keep the conversation going. Don't shut them out. And trust that God is going to send the rain. And I know you've looked into the sky, and I know that you haven't seen a cloud in a long time. But dig. You're still waiting on God for a spouse. Dig. Instead of just holding up your cup and say, God, I'll just wait till you put something in it. How about work on you? Be the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. You need a job? Pick up a shovel. Because you can either sit there and say, God's going to bring me a job, or you can spend the time that you're unemployed learning a new skill or volunteering. I'm going to decide in the moment when I'm waiting for God, when it looks like I put out a resume all the time and nobody would ever wants to hire me, and it looks like there's not a cloud in the sky, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dig. I'm going to dig. You need to continue to keep digging ditches in this church. Do you hear me, Meadowbrook? This church is here today because of the older generation that have dug ditches. And when God called on his blessing, the water was filled. But you can't stop there because you can't just consume the water. You have to keep digging. And I'm believing for great days ahead for this church. And I'm believing for great days with, with a new pastor coming. Leamington needs Meadowbrook. Do you hear me? Leamington needs Meadowbrook. You need to keep digging ditches. Keep dreaming about new ministries. Keep praying for the lost. Keep opening your doors and keep digging. Even when it feels like there's not a cloud in the sky, you need to dig. And Elijah doesn't tell the kings, dig a ditch. He says, dig ditches. 
believe for more. And when you think you've dug enough, dig another one. Dig and dig and dig. And we can dig with our words. We can dig with our actions. We can dig with our prayers. And the deeper that we dig, the more rain it will hold. And even when it seems like the rain's not here, it's coming. It's coming. And when God pours out his blessing, you'll be able to handle everything that he brings. And this community will, be bene- will benefit because of it. Why don't you pray with me? God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the generations before that dug ditches with expectation. It may have felt at times there was not a new person that walked through the doors in, in, in weeks or months. And yet they were faithful and they dug. And there's now people sitting in this room right now that are benefiting from the, those, those ditches that were dug so long ago. I pray for the person here who is, who's lost hope a while ago, who looked up into the sky in their own personal situation, whether it's their marriage, and whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's, it's a prodigal child, well, whatever it might be. And they looked up into the sky and they saw nothing. They saw no signs of rain. And they put their shovel down. And they gave up. Or they put their cup out. And they were content with that. And Lord, I would call on them to pick up their shovel again and dig. With expectation, as we look to the sky, that there is a cloud coming. And that you're going to pour out your blessing on their situation. And it's going to be their testimony. That they were faithful and they never gave up. So God, we thank you that you are a good God that never changes. A good God who cares about our own personal situation. And a God that wants to transform this community through this church. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.